I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. In the next hour, it's a man who changed the face of documentary film forever, a musician who's figured out how to make sun tea in the back of his van, but not in a creepy way, and a cast member of Fox's Bob's Burgers with enough self-awareness about his excitement levels to say... Whatever the normal amount of excitement for this is, is the exact amount plus the little that I have. It's... It's... Courtney Hommeister. And remember those very special episodes of Blossom? Well, this is that very same thing for Livewire Radio, except my Bialik isn't here, and you're probably not going to learn a lesson about cheating in school. Tonight, it's a kind of a get a glass of brandy, put on a cravat, and sit back and enjoy kind of Livewire. The thing is, a lot of amazing people come through Portland pretty much every day. And sometimes those people have the audacity to visit our fair city, TM, click and clack, on days when we're not taping a live show. So we asked them to join us in the studio for a chat. And this show features three greats. We have one of the most influential documentary filmmakers of all time, D.A. Pennebaker, and his co-director, Chris Hegedus. We have music from the funny, smart, and charming as all get-out folkster Steve Poltz. And memories of Russia, well... Actually, just one memory of Russia from the hilarious Eugene Merman. So let's get right to it. Back in August, legendary documentarian D.A. Pennebaker and his co-director Chris Hegedus were in Portland for a retrospective of their work at the Hollywood Theater. And we got to talk to them in their beautiful room at Portland's Hotel Deluxe. D.A. is a pioneer of documentary film. He's responsible, along with Richard Leacock, for creating portable sound recording equipment that essentially created cinema verite as we know it. And he's directed landmarks of the genre like Don't Look Back about Bob Dylan's 1965 tour of England, Monterey Pop, and Company, original cast album. In 1976, he started collaborating with Chris Hegedus, and together they've co-directed films like The War Room about Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign, Town Bloody Hall with Norman Mailer, and Depeche Mode 101. Their most recent film together is Kings of Pastry. It's a documentary about the prestigious Meilleur Ouvrier de France competition, where grown men cry over pastry. Here's our conversation with D.A. and Chris. Thank you so much for being here with us. We're happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> yep. 
Well, first, uh, DA, I wanted to talk about this technology. Um, the first time that you used this technology that you created with Leacock um, was on Primary, right? Was on the film Primary? Not really. We we had it in mind, but the cameras we used on uh, Primary were sort of primitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were, we were so using? busy trying to make it at the same time and use it that we never were sure what we had. Which makes your job quite a bit harder, right, when you're using technology that you've never used before? Um, well, I guess. The, the problem was that what we wanted to do was to be able to film and record dialogue uh, in the streets or in a desert or on an opera house. You know, Kandelsky had made a Nagra especially for us. We could use it would be sync. But we had to carry it around. But the cameras were noisy and uh, they weren't sync. And uh, we had uh, we had various uh, ways of trying to uh, wrap blankets around them or whatever. It was a little awkward, but the the effects we wanted were so uh, immediate that we knew when it worked that it was uh, that was what we needed to do. They talk about primary as being a groundbreaking film. Primary was yeah. uh, about uh, the Democratic primary between Hubert Humphrey and, and JFK. They talked about it being groundbreaking in terms of the access that you got and in terms of some of those intimate moments. And if you're making a film that's groundbreaking, do you know it at the time? I, that would be for both of you, I think, because I, they, they say the same, the same thing about well, War Room, Chris. I, I, the, the only film that I ever thought was going to be groundbreaking i think uh when when we did it was uh depeche mode why oh, why did you feel that at the time because when we started we thought we had no idea what that music was like and we couldn't understand it it seemed impossible uh, they were they, you know they, these were working class kids from from london uh they had decided since their mothers wouldn't let them practice in the house because it made too much noise that they would run all their uh, their background they would be on tape mm-hmm. they wouldn't have a drum they wouldn't have a back a band they were like pirates slipping through the the, the groundworks of of america and uh, they were marvelous i loved them well it was such a different style i mean you've you've filmed Jimi hendrix in his first yeah. major american concert um david bowie you know some of the biggest pop stars and rock stars of many generations, actually. Do you feel like, um, both of you, do you feel like because you've been on the inside that you in some way have a little bit more insight into this fascination that we have with rock stars and pop stars? I mean, I I don't really, but, you know, celebrity, you know, is such a huge part of our culture. And certainly, you know, rock stars and politicians are both, you know, symbolic of that type of thing. But, I mean, in terms of your your question about the groundbreaking, um, I mean, I really, I, I don't know if we know we're filming something groundbreaking, but I do know that um, certain times you just feel like you're uh, filming something on the flux of change. And I know I, I did feel that in the war room just because um, there had been, you know, eight years of, of, um, of Republican administration in the White House, and there was just, you know, such a desire for change, and, and you really felt it when you were in the room with the Clinton campaign. Um, and I think the same thing happened when I did a film called Startup.com that was about the beginning of the Internet. Um, right, right around, it was 2001, right? It was, yeah, we started filming in 99, and we went kind of right through the, the crash. And, you know, you just felt that something something was happening, and, you know, it was that was the reason why I wanted to do that 
story at the time. And, and you know, if you can be on the cusp of, of that type of excitement, um, you know, it's a great time to make a film. And I think Penny Baker was certainly there for Monterey Pop. I mean, that was another time yeah. in California when music was changing and youth yeah. was changing. Also, just going back to the war room, there were moments in the war room where, um, as a viewer, you're shocked that they're allowing you to be there. They're saying things on the phone. There was the moment when George Stephanopoulos is telling someone they'll never work in politics again. What does it feel like when you're shooting a moment like that? Is it? Do you feel nervous that they're going to hang up the phone and say, give me your camera? Yeah, I mean... I- you know, all these no. films, the most important thing is, is access. And, you know, access um, is very, you know, transitory. And, you know, people like having you around, you know, when everything's going well. But when there's problems, you know, they're not so happy to have you there. So, you know, if you can keep your foot in the door and stay in the room during, you know, times um, like that, you know, as a filmmaker, that's gold. Um, but, you, you know, you have to, it's a very precious thing. And, you know, you have to to uh, be ready to, you know, when they say no, go away, go away, and then somehow wiggle your way back in again. Right. Is there a time that you can remember where you were told to get out but but stood your ground? Well, what you do is you kind of join the team. And when you become a member of the team, uh, then there's no holds barred. And nobody thinks of it because what you're working with is a tiny camera – in the beginning, it was a homemade camera, so it didn't even look very important. And uh, a tape recorder that looks like a kind of a, a carrying case for a typewriter or something. And so people don't think that you're making an important film. And when they accept you and you've kind of joined the team, uh, then nobody pays attention to you. You're, they've got other things to do, and you're not the most important well, you actually, you've said that your technique is to make the camera the least important thing in the room. What are the ways that both of you do that? What are your techniques in doing that? You've talked a little bit about yeah. the look of it, but in terms of your your body and your... Right from the beginning, when the first equipment was being developed, I mean, the idea was to be portable, lightweight, be able to photograph... Um, quietly without lights and you know we've kind of carried that through the years as the equipment has adapted and um, you know we don't use boom mics you know overhead with fuzzy things on them and just you know try to be a lot lower key so that you're not the focus of what's going on and I think that's really important I mean sometimes you might um, you know it might take away a little bit from the technical quality uh, compared to something but at the same time you know you you're able to be there and uh, if you don't try to get every phone call or every uh, important speech, if you sort of let uh, things happen and just roll with it, then I think people see that what you're really doing is uh, is watching a situation rather than making a film for yourself. Well, and a lot of documentarians feel very strongly about never putting themselves into their own films. That that And that's changed a lot. Were there times over the course of making films that you felt like you had to inject yourself a little bit more into the story in order to get it told in the right way? I didn't have any rules in my head about what, what you could or couldn't do. I'd never been to film school, so I really didn't know. Uh, the only documentaries I really knew about was Flaherty, or was Nanook. And so... I didn't have much experience at what you should or shouldn't do. And I know when I was asked to do Monterey, uh, I didn't even know what a music festival 
Well, no, I'd never seen a film of one, so I had no idea kind of how it worked, uh, nor did I even think that these would be important uh, performers. I, I, I didn't, Lou Adler, I, I hadn't even met Lou Adler, because all the films I'd made before I'd made by myself, you know, with, with a single camera. So I just got everybody I knew that, that liked music, that I knew that they knew music and listened to music, uh, and, and gave them a camera, because we had five that we'd made by then, and, uh, and prayed. <laughs> that they'd all work. I mean, I had. I have to say, I was very apprehensive because I thought all five cameras won't work. And it turns out that people like Janice and uh, uh, and uh, the airplane are important, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of them's going to break down in the middle of something, and oh God, it's going to be hard. So I, 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 all those three days, I was very apprehensive. I mean, I've always felt that uh, that the diary film is you know, a fascinating film um, style, but it's not something that we've ever tried to do. I mean, if, if our subjects want to talk to us, um, you know, if you're just the only person in the room with them, you know, obviously they're going to turn to the camera and talk to you, and that's fine. But I think what I've always been interested in is more uh, more films that create drama and follow drama in, in very much the same way as a, a play or, or a fiction film so that the story gets revealed in the telling and you're not being told what's happening which is you know an other type of documentary but not what i'm that interested in i'm interested in in subjects and character and and the story unfolding in front of you in the same way that we we watch the stories in real life unfold in front of us well, well, and it was a big deal when you, when you didn't use any narration in Don't Look Back, and you didn't let people know who these characters were. You just sort of watched the story unfold. I mean, do you, and I think that a lot of people consider documentaries to be sort of, uh, they want them to be a historical document. So they kind yeah. of tell people what's going on at a certain time. But it seems this felt just more like you wanted to tell a story. I wanted the audience to be very hip. <laughs> so you wanted them to figure it out for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, because... That's the most interesting thing about a story is figuring it out, whether it's a play or a movie. Or, I mean, the 29 steps didn't start out saying what the 29 steps were, right. you know. You had to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to touch on Kings of Pastry a little bit. It's this uh, very intense competition that takes place over, it's three days, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, it's extremely stressful for these men they they rehearse for it for months yes. and, and they mortgage and, their homes yeah. they leave their wives and children <laughs> exactly. or they leave yeah it's their horrible. wives and children it's leave them um but it's it just struck me in sort of looking at the films that you guys have made um and how passionate they were about this that so many of your films are really about people who are incredibly passionate about something is there a, a reason why you focus on that why that means something to you? Well, I mean, it. I think rather than kind of getting at people who are doing the wrong thing, <laughs> it interests us to do things about people who really know how to do something well in what they're doing. And, you know, the people who do things the best tend to be very passionate at what they're doing uh, to the point of really being obsessed. Um, and I think a lot of our subjects have been obsessed <laughs> with whatever they're doing. <laughs> and, you know, and when they're you know, in that kind of frame of mind, um, it tends to be fascinating because there's a similarity between, you know, people who are making French pastry and electing a president in that way. And and I think when people watch Kings of Pastry, they're always shocked because it 
actually fascinating, and it's amazing to watch people who care that much about what they're doing. It just it draws you in, and also that they're doing things at this very high level. I mean, they're not just making cream puffs. They're making six-foot sugar sculptures. Yes, beautiful, stunning sculptures. Well, that um, it matters masters. so much to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you often see people doing things that matter to them, and you wonder, how can that be? Why, why are these guys collecting butterfly wings, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, that's the way everything is. And so you, you, you sort of come to terms with it. Well, if, if people let you into their world and they show you why it's so interesting to them and why it matters to them, it becomes fascinating. Yeah, no, ma- yeah, no matter what it is. Yeah. So what's next for you guys? What's the next project? Um, the next project that we're just considering doing and just starting a little on is following an animal rights lawyer who wants to mount a very controversial case for um, rights for animals. And make it a person. Interesting. Make an animal. Oh, make an animal a person. Yeah. And you're just currently working on that now, so probably yeah. in the next couple of years. Well, it'll, it'll be probably a while before it <laughs> cresses, but... Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a Livewire studio session with D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That was D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges, and you're listening to a special Livewire Radio Studio Edition. We'll be right back. Livewire. Next up is a conversation we had with musician and songwriter Steve Poltz. Steve was a founding member of the Rugburns. They were an indie band out of San Diego with a pop sensibility and a distinctive sense of humor. Their video for the song Hitchhiker Joe featured the band singing in a high school's multi-purpose cafetorium. Uh, very glamorous. His solo work ranges from the sweet to the satirical, the sweet side being well represented in his co-writing of Jewel's most successful single, You Were Meant For Me, and the love song Everything About You, which appeared on the soundtrack to the romantic comedy Notting Hill, and the satirical by Rugburn songs like Morning Wood and Hitchhiker Joe. He's been known to name his guitars, including Smokey Joe, Trailer Trash, and Flower Pot. He's released nine records, the most recent of which is Noiny Noiny Noin. This is Steve Poltz. I was recently on the road and I got a phone call from this girl and she said, I might have to take this call while I'm talking to you. And I said, okay, cool. And she said, it's the Dalai Lama's agent. And I said, what? The Dalai Lama has an agent? And then it hit me. Of course he has an agent. He's not going to call up the clubs like, it's the Lama. I want to play here. (laughs) It's the Lama. Yeah. (laughs) I said to her, well, what's on the Dalai Lama's rider? Because, you know, like Van Halen was 
infamous for saying we didn't want any green, they didn't want green M&Ms yeah. in a bowl of M&Ms on their rider. And I toured once with Rufus Wainwright and he had a bottle of Bushmills on his rider back when he used to drink. And back when I used to drink, I had a bottle of Jameson. So I was representing Catholic and he was representing <laughs> Protestant. And we would laugh about our riders. And so I said, what's on the Dalai Lama's rider? And then she said, oh, I have to go. I have to take a call. That's his agent calling me. So I made up this song uh, the other day and it's called The Dalai Lama's Agent. Here goes. Dalai Lama's agent emailed me again with a handful of requests I was on the I-10 I pulled off to a rest stop and put my paper to the pen they said the Lama likes his whiskey and small bills and fives and tens I'd seen a lot of riders from England to Nepal, Ringo, George, and John, the Dalai Lama, and Paul. I said I must be dreaming. The skies are black above. There's a beating in my heart, and there's a reason why I love. and flowing robes and the opium is free there's a bed there on the corner and a telescope to see there's a seashell on the table if you hold it to your ear and you listen really close you'll hear laughter from a pier the children are all singing their voices blend as one. It's happiness they're bringing. They're dancing in the sun. And everything is perfect. And we're all spinning free. The telescope is waiting. Take a look and you will see. All the world below you and eternity above. Your spirit is forever. And this is why I love. This is why I love. Steve Poltz with the Dalai Lama's writer. You talked a little bit about uh, about your writer, right? And that's yeah. the, the completely appropriate. I would expect all of those things to be on the Dalai Lama's writer. Yeah. If you, let's say there's a writer fairy and the writer fairy says, you can have whatever you want on your writer. What would be your ultimate writer? Well, you know what's weird? I used to dream about being so famous that we could have anything we wanted on our writers. And then I, I went on tour and I was, it was at the height of, uh, Jules Peak and we were playing mm -hmm. like sheds and flew on some private jets always staying at the Four Seasons um, I had Bob Dylan's guitar tech he would plug in my guitars set up a little table for me to play poker with everybody um, 
plug in the cord of my guitar. I didn't have to do anything. My plug luggage, in the cord. Yeah, like we would laugh. Too difficult like, for you. Because I, um, I used to talk to my friend Doug Pettibone, this great guitarist, and we have this running joke every time we see each other. If a cord's hanging out of a guitar, we go, we look at each other with a quizzical look like, where does this go? <laughs> It's so funny. I don't understand but, how I'm too important to understand how this works. Yeah, how does this go? And uh, the funny thing is, is now that I'm out on the road and I'm back doing it, how I, how I've been going, you know, just in my van, um, I really don't need anything on my rider. This is what I've come to the conclusion of. I've sold off most of my guitars. I got rid of a big car I had. All I have is a little Volkswagen van, a couple guitars, and all I really want on my rider is. Um, some water, and maybe a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I actually, uh, I read on your blog that you had a little, um, you had an Instagram accident. Oh, yeah. I was, I'm obsessed with Instagram. <laughs> it's really dumb. I was in Michigan, and I was walking, and I walked into this guy's house, and I liked, he had a weird carving. I go, I've got to Instagram that. And not looking at the stairs, I just walked into his house and fell downstairs and twisted my ankle. So I've been icing it, and it's slowly healing, you know. I sprained mm-hmm. it because of Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that as a creative person, how has our sort of move to to being more sort of digitally engaged? How has that affected your creativity, if at all? Well, I really like it. Like everybody complains today about what's happened to our industry in that it's been decimated. It's been leveled. It's been raised. Yeah. Completely upended the music business. And the way I look at it is, look, I was signed to a major label years ago. Danny Goldberg signed me to Mercury Records. And I went through all of that. You know, I had the Rolling Stone writers and I had a chance to do that. I got to live that way. But what this has done is it's taken away the velvet rope mentality. So we don't have a gatekeeper there. Now, anybody who wants to make a record makes a record. I actually like it. And I think it's an opportunity for everybody. And yeah, there's a lot of crap out there, but just be excellent at what you do. Get your 10,000 hours in and really, really work on your craft and go out and play as many venues as you can. And not just for your friends who are going to tell you you're great. Go play for audiences that are potentially hostile and get good at your craft. And then you can make a living doing this. Maybe the salad glory days are done, but, you know, that was all bloated. It was it had gotten too big. Mm -hmm. You know, I lived in part of that world. I got to live on it as a sort of an interloper or an outsider and being a guitarist in Jules Band and going Singapore, Malaysia, Japan and all these areas. And it was super fun. But guess what, man? Driving in my VW van and sitting here talking to you is just as fun. (laughs) It's awesome. I get to do this. I want to go back to you made a really interesting point about playing for hostile audiences. Yeah. And this is something that stand-up comics do to hone their craft. Sure. You know, um, but it's also... It's really not fun, right? No. I mean, how do you do you somehow because you you tour over 200 days out of the year. What do you learn from those gigs? What I learned is your body makes its own chemicals. So if I'm feeling tired and I feel like I don't want to do a show, I give myself what I call an energy infusion. And the way I do it is I go out on stage and do something completely idiotic that makes me start sweating, that is really lame. Like maybe I've done this before. I put on a Britney Spears song and I made up my own dance routine and started my show with it because it was so stupid and people were going, this guy's an idiot. And then I have to dig myself out of that hole by being super goofy and half the room gets it and they're laughing. And I go, I'm sorry that just happened. And then what it does is my body makes its own drugs. This is why I'm sober now. My body makes its own chemicals and they're all within me. And then my heart's beating and I find this well of creativity that didn't exist before because I open up 
my own little kind of through my own Higgs boson particle in my brain, uh-huh. I go to another dimension and I can get energy and I, I'll, I'll find creativity. And as long as I have something new to do, it gives me the wherewithal to keep doing this because look at man, we're all going to die and we're just doing this. We're on our little journey and it's a beautiful journey if you look for the beauty in it. If you yeah. choose not to, then that's your own little journey you're on, and that's cool too. You know, you can be dour and and everything else, and that and there's a place for that. There's great art for that. I want to look at the world like there's this Coen Brothers film called The Serious Man, and this guy's in search for some truth, and so he goes to see these rabbis, and he wants to see the eldest rabbi, who's going to supposedly be the wisest man, but he gets stuck with the youngest rabbi, and there's this scene that always sticks with me as he speaks to the guy. The guy says. Let's, we have to pray to Hashem and Hashem, you know, I'm Catholic, but I know Hashem now I had to look it up is the one we don't speak of the kind of the Jewish word for God. And he says, look at the parking lot. You have to look at the parking lot with new eyes. And that stuck with me. And the guy's mad at him, but I was thinking he's right. Look at that ugly parking lot with new eyes. Look at the music industry we're in. You get to do this stuff. You can make your own record. And yeah, maybe not everybody's going to see you, but be excellent in your art. And somebody's going to find you because it's going to resonate with somebody. Well, and, you, and you're able to support yourself. Um, I am. Obviously. Um, but there's been a lot of talk. Um, I'm sure that you've seen it recently about digital downloading. And Emily White from NPR posted something that essentially said, I've never bought a piece of music in my whole life. And David <laughs> Lowry uh, from Cracker responded uh, very eloquently and strongly, um, essentially saying, hey, why don't you try being a good person? Um, <laughs> where do you stand on that aspect of it? Of the industry. And that's just the way it is today. So I don't get caught up in these little arguments. You know, everybody wants to to bloviate about things. And I get it. It's the, He's making a salient point. And so is Emily. But the way I look at it is this. What do you want to do? You, you're going to go out and tell people we have to start sending postcards again rather than emails? It's here. It's here. It's happening. So I don't worry about it. The way we are moving to a cloud-based future, the new MacBook Pros do not even have a CD drive in them. Everything's going to be like Spotify or RDIO, that thing radio. It's like Spotify mm-hmm. or iTunes is going to have a cloud-based service. I'm really good friends with Steve Wozniak who started Apple Computer. I played his 60th birthday party. He just flew out to see my show in London. We talk about this stuff all the time and I love Steve. And the the way it is is – you can't stop what's happening. So Emily may have never paid for music, but guess what? People don't want to steal music. It's a hassle to get a BitTorrent site, and you got virus <laughs> worries and all this. If you make it easy enough for people and then slowly suck them in, the first hit of crack is free. And then you're like, oh, guess what? Now it's 20 bucks a month. Oh, okay, I guess that's what it costs. Right. I, I try not to get too caught up in it because it's here, and we can't sure. stop it. I started going out on the road and recording every live show and selling them that night because that was something people couldn't buy. Because it existed then, and they wanted to be a piece of the show. Um, you talk about a string that you feel between you and the audience. Can you talk about that string a little bit? Yeah. Um, I like to think of the audience, that there's a string maybe connected from my forehead to the audience. And if I see it sagging too much, and maybe I see somebody in the middle of a show start yawning, I think, oh, man, I'm losing the audience. So I'm thinking of all these options while I'm playing. I never use a set list. And I look at the audience, and I can kind of tell energy-wise. I just go through instinct. If I'm losing them, then I go, okay, I need to do something funny here. Okay, I'm ready for a really dour, sad song. Now I'm ready for a good story. So as I'm singing one song, I'm thinking of a story, but I never use a set list. Last night... I met a guy yesterday at Voodoo Donuts, and the guy actually showed up 
brought his wife, and I said, you're the guy I met in the donut line. And somebody said, that sounds like a good song. You're the guy I met in the donut line. Will you write it? And I go, yeah. So I wrote a song on the spot called You're the Guy I Met in the Donut Line. And and the song went really well. Sometimes you just, it's like a, a blind squirrel finds an acorn. Last night I found it, and the song had rhyme scheme, everything. And I finished it, and then I said, man, I am so sick of playing that song. Everywhere I go, people want to hear, you're the guy I met in the donut line. It's just like, come on, pick something else. And so yeah, man. that you know, gave me an energy. Try a B-side once in a while, <laughs> yes. you know? Um, it's interesting that you, I mean, I love hearing you talk about how you, uh, how you go into it really not knowing what you're doing. And, you know, we've talked to people who, who do improvisation and, and, uh, talk to Jonah Lair, uh, who wrote a book about creativity where he talks about improvisational jazz musicians and the prefrontal cortex and how they studied them. And they realized that the prefrontal cortex is the area of your brain that edits you and they've somehow managed to move beyond it. They've somehow managed to turn it off. And it seems to me, based on the way that you talk about it, is that it's almost like your fear manage is what gets you around it. You know, that kind of that kind of uh, energy and that you get from from not knowing what you're doing is what what gets your brain to just be able to f- kind of fly it by is. the seat of its pants while you're performing. As a kid, I had I, I know I had ADD really bad and I had eczema, asthma, I stuttered. Uh-huh. You know, I had a hernia on each side. Then I had like 13 collapsed lungs. I was allergic to everything. I was the guy that didn't make the basketball team when all 15 guys rode up to look at the names. Mine was the only name not on there. So I still feel like I'm that kid. The way I look at it is I think my art and everything came from being a little kid and having a lot of rejection, being really sick. And also my mom uh, was really depressed when I was a kid. She suffered from depression and I, I really feel like I learned guitar to try to make her happy. And I still feel in a way like I'm that kid yeah. trying to make her happy. And the audience is almost a substitute for that. And so I really want to please them. But I don't want to pander, but I want to please them. And so it was, it's been hard in my life trying to find that one, that balance of not pandering and still pleasing them and pleasing myself. And, it, and it'll be a lifelong journey of which I right. will never achieve. I think it's true for every for every performer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, um, it's been a pleasure. We're going to maybe listen to another song from you as sure. we go out. Uh, we've been talking to Steve Poltz. His most recent record is Noining Noining Noin. <laughs> the way I came up with the title is I asked a promoter, when was the first time I came to Australia? What year was it? And he said, oh, I reckon it was about Noining Noining Noin. <laughs> This is the lead track, and it's called Spirit Hands. And there's a line in here where I mention God, and I've always had like this weird relationship with God because I was raised so Catholic, so Catholic. I was an altar boy. You know, I used to bring the wine to the priest, and he would change the wine into Jesus' blood is what they tell you. And I would pretend I was a French waiter when I brought the wine up, and that's what got me kicked out of being an altar boy because I'd say, Yes, Father Murphy, this is a 1967 Cabernet. It would go good with the filet mignon. So he didn't let me be an altar boy anymore because of that. So I would have to sit out in the congregation. And then when they did the Lord's Prayer, the uh, Our Father, I would sit by my sister and see if I could get her kicked out of Mass because she'd be next to my mom. And I would do the Lord's Prayer in a French accent as well, like a snotty French waiter. And I would go, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, not that crappy wonder bread. <laughs> and then by then she would be laughing so hard. And I would act like I didn't do anything and my mom would 
drag her by the ear out of mass and I would act like a little angel. So in this song, I mentioned God, but my idea of God now could be, could be anything. It could be just a spirit that I see in you as I sit here. This is the lead track to 9099, and this is a song called Spirit Hands. Lay me down in a field of daisies. Let me dance in a room full of crazies. I was lost, but now I'm found again. Won't you run away with me around the bend? again Sometimes I feel like you're my only friend The world is cold and cruel But I'm in the spirit school Full of gifts and takes Trying to learn from my mistakes special live wire studio session his latest record is noiny noiny noin and uh you can find it on itunes and probably a bit torn site you're listening to a special live wire radio studio edition 
If you're going to be in the Portland area on October 13th, you should come to the Aladdin Theater for a live taping of Livewire at the Wordstock Festival. We've got Studio 360's Kurt Anderson on that show, author Aaron Morgenstern, soul singer Betty Levette, and we have music from Seattle's The Satisfaction and David Bazan. You can find more information on that at livewireradio.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to LiveWire. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, who offer a comprehensive line of ergonomic work furniture. Their sit-stand desks help you keep your core involved while you power through those YouTube videos of seal pups. Information from the healthy sitting experts can be found at ergodepot.com. Next up is one of our favorite funny men. We caught up with him on his last tour through Portland in May. Eugene Merman is a comedian. He's an actor, an amateur advice columnist, and the founder of the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival in New York. He can be seen in comedy clubs around the country, as well as on Fox's Bob's Burgers as 11-year-old Gene, Flight of the Concords as Eugene the Landlord, Aquatine Hunger Force as Dr. Eugene Merman, and delocated as Evgeny, which means, evidently, Eugene in Russian. He's released three comedy albums and a book of very helpful advice, The Will to Whatevs, from HarperCollins. And he was named one of the 10 best comedians of the last decade by Pace Magazine, and public radio fans can now hear him on NPR's Cabinet of Wonders. This is our conversation with Eugene Merman. Eugene, welcome to your first Livewire studio session. Hello. Are you excited? I am very excited. (laughs) Good. That's appropriate. That's the appropriate response. Yeah, whatever the normal amount of excitement for this is, is the exact amount plus the little that I have. Well done. Good. Well done. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit. um, When you were four years old, uh, you came to America with your family from Russia. Yes. Um, What do you remember about your life there? In Russia? In Russia. I I remember nothing. Not because my mind's been wiped. (laughs) But because I don't recall. By the government. Um, yeah, yeah. They erased your brain, and then you were sent to America where you are a sleeping operative. It's a lot like that film uh, The Experts with John Travolta. Was that a documentary? Maybe. Uh, about my life. Um, uh, I don't remember. The, the only thing I remember, uh, which sounds silly, is the smell of black currant. Wow. That turns out to be the only thing, because I was in a store like years ago with my parents, like a Russian food store. And I smelled this thing, and I was like, oh, my God, I don't know why this is so familiar. And they were like, oh, well, in Russia, we had these uh, bushes at our dacha. Yeah. That's a thing we had. Wow. Um, But then, yeah, Russia is a cold, cruel country, so we came here. (laughs) Well, that's what's interesting. It's interesting that you say that because I understand that you've never been back. No. um, But you want to go back. I do. I would love to go and make a documentary of going back. Because all the stories I know, I'm sure it's, like, sort of fine in there, but all... 
uh, the stories I'm told about Russia are like the ones where like Stalin comes and takes your family away. <laughs> sure. So there's no or like our phones were tapped by the KGB, you know, because they thought my dad had books he wasn't supposed to have. So it's like that kind of wow. thing where. Like, all the stories I know are slightly terrifying. And, and even when I told my mom that, like, I want to go back because I'm really curious. And people go there all the time. It's, you know, it's probably fine. Yeah. But when I told my mom that I wanted to go, she was just like, it's a lawless country. Don't go. Like, they'll just, they'll irradiate you and detain you. And then and then you can't. And that's it. There's nothing you can do. Well, and they, I'm sure, still have family there. No, not really. Oh, okay. I mean, like, maybe a, uh, like a, somebody's cousin. They have friends there and stuff. No one's afraid of, like, reprisals or our business being taxed. Sure. So much it's out, it goes out under, but um, I think it's just vaguely that they sometimes murder journalists. Still, oh. like to this day. Well, yeah, you know. I, I believe then your mother might have she a valid has concern. A point, but I, but most people go there and they have some pierogi and everything's fine. You know what I mean? Like she she makes it sound like every other person is like put to death secretly and no questions are asked. Well, it's really probably every like eight hundredth person, and it's like, what are the chances of it being me? Well, one in eight hundred. Chance of my own riddle. Exactly. Excellent math skills as well. Thank you. I did graduate with a 2.1 grade point average from right. high school. So well, I, no. there's a reason I earned the 2.1, and it was that ability. Right. Well, you actually didn't. Uh, you actually graduated from Hampshire College. Yes. And you designed your own major, which was a comedy major. Can you yes. tell me what that looked like? Um, it looked like a bad idea to people from the outside, and then it was a very practical decision by a wonderful child named Eugene. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, you know, Hampshire in general, I mean, first of all, everyone at Hampshire designs their own major. It's, it's a place where you design your own education, and it's sort of what makes Hampshire so great. Um, my, and, and then it works in this three-tiered system of division one, two, and three. First things are like independent studies. I did for natural science, the physiology of laughter. A paper wow. on that for social science. I did a paper on Lenny Bruce's effect on culture. Then for like the next phase, you do a sort of a concentration where I took like writing and history, like rise of mass culture, uh, film acting. I did like a um, like a humor column, all this different stuff that yeah. you put together in this sort of general thing. And then the next phase is like a thesis, which for me was a one hour stand up act that I like wrote and promoted and produced. And really learned a lot in terms of the types of things I would then go out to, on to do in terms of starting my own shows. And Well, I, I, it, what's interesting is that I think that a lot of people who are in comedy would say, you're not going to become a good comedian by studying comedy theory or writing about the physiology right. of humor. But it worked you're, for you, apparently. Well, well, no, they're right. You wouldn't get good at comedy uh, <laughs> doing that. Though I will say that in my paper on the physiology of laughter, I had a footnote. And then when you look down, it just said, made you look. <laughs> Which is a really funny thing to hand a teacher um, <laughs> in college, but uh, a science teacher. What you uh, may be hearing is that Scott Poole, our poet, is actually sitting in the room and can't uh, help himself. Um, thank you. Um, no, you can't. But 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 there's two different things. One is, is that a good way to become a comedian? No, but that's a good way to get a Bachelor of Arts and and then temp for a while and then be a comedian and, and also spend years learning random stuff, you know? Yeah. So it was more that I was going to go to college and then if I was going to do that, I wanted to study something that interested me. Not that I really thought like, well, once I graduate with this, they'll probably put me on television. Right. Because who else has this degree and this level of boring knowledge? Um, no, it was more that it was – it ended up being actually very practical because the things I did were like running my own weekly show or pr- producing certain things or doing a radio show. You know, It was things that would end up being experiences that I would use later in, in a very real way, much more so that I'm sure like 
English majors necessarily in terms of like writing like novels like yeah. I don't know yeah um, well and you're actually um, I, next week you're going to give the commencement address at Hampshire yes I'm aware this is a <laughs> this is an interesting time to be giving commencement addresses yes. you know and one would say that it, that I am an odd person to pick in an interesting time <laughs> to give a that, commencement an interesting person in an interesting time yeah. um, what are you going to say to them yeah, that's what I ask myself every day until I get more and more nervous. Unlike in college, though, I'm not procrastinating. I'm writing huge amounts of things that I don't know how to organize. That's great, though. Um, uh, yeah, I have still a lot to do. You know, I don't know. Like, I've watched a lot of commencement speeches, and people will – like, a lot of the people that normally you ask are, like, politicians or, or you know, writers or philosophers or, whatever, or, or professors of sorts. And they all, like, what they do is they organize – grand ideas into either digestible and interesting or digestible and boring uh, <laughs> speeches that go on forever. Uh, and, and I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I mean, my only advice to people is like, pick a thing that you want to do. Think of like five ways to accomplish it and try all five. And then whatever works, do that more. And then think of more and do that for 10 years. Like, that's my real advice. But that's, I probably can't done. say that because it sounds like, okay, I, maybe I even knew that. And I'm like, yeah, you probably did. I don't know. It's really the, the like sort of commitment to actually doing something for like a decade or more, which at the age of 20, few people have done. Because mm-hmm. at the age of 10, you rarely start, unless you're like a gymnast or a guitarist maybe or Did something Did you like have that. a plan when you started? Like when you graduated, did uh, you? Well, yeah. I mean, I majored in comedy, so I definitely wanted to do comedy. And I definitely started at like... 18 or so when I first did stand up but but I would you know I would do a set and then it'd be like months between sets that's why I ended up eventually starting a comedy night in my dorm in the basement because there wasn't a place to perform even every week and you really don't become much better when you're doing the same jokes three months later and you don't know about like oh I should be writing all the time but then unless you can really go up frequently yeah it's it's trial and error it's like a science art of science or something (laughs) because it's like you literally are like this sounds funny in my head and then you say it and then you're like I was right or you're like that was very artificial and it felt weird and I have to tweak it you know and you just need the literal experience of performing so um yeah that's the thing I forget what the question was but I think I answered it <laughs> it was just about about sort of your plan I mean oh the, yeah the speech that I'm gonna give oh well yeah and, and yeah, uh I was plan. actually asked to do a commencement address very impressive at a, mm-hmm. a high school and what I thought immediately was oh no now I'm going to have to pretend to have hope yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, what you have to pretend is to have will, not hope. Jesus. What's wrong with you, hope? The weak person's will. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, there's that thing where it's, oh, no, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to inspire people. That's, yeah, that's I, a tall that, order. Yes, that's the part that terrifies me. Yeah. I know how I can joke around and then leave. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can... Be like, I, and and the other thing is, you listen to speeches. Like I've heard a lot of speeches, and people will be like, "I started as a little boy, and then I did all this stuff, and now I have a fair trade, you know, like broccoli business, and it's better than all of yours." And you and like, and I'm like, I don't, like, I feel really weird getting up and being like, "I made so many great decisions, and I didn't have health care for six years, and it's fine." And it's like it's such, like I can't you I, you, you can't use yourself as, ex- no, as an example, an example right. of like what people should do. That sounds it's somewhere between uh, pretentious and upsetting. And it seems inappropriate to use other people as an example because yeah. you're the one talking to them. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, <laughs> but I'll I'll like look at Bill Clinton's life. My guess is he did a good job. Or just just play Steve Jobs. 
address. I will, I will. Yes. You know, I saw several years ago at Hampshire because his daughter went there. Bob Goldthwaite give give the commencement speech, and he was wonderful. And one of the things he did was he was like, "I don't really know how to do this, so I'm going to read uh, just an Oprah speech that she gave to like Wellesley College." It was really funny. He read it for like a good like four minutes or five minutes. Like it was wow. like a lot of the speech. I can't remember, but it was really funny. Well, I wanted to talk. You're you're on Bob's Burgers, yeah. which is on Fox, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that show. It's a very funny uh, animated show, uh, and it's 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 very funny, and I think stra- strangely sweet. Yes, like, I agree. Uh, yeah, in- incredibly sweet. Um, uh, other great voices like John Benjamin, Kristen Schaal, um, and uh, I want to just play a, a little bit of the of a package that that Fox actually sure. made, and this is creator, executive producer Lauren Bouchard, um, and he's talking about the character of Jean, which okay. is your your character. Oh, the 11-year-old kid. And then we'll hear, uh, what you'll hear is Gene is in front of his class and he's got a little Casio keyboard. Mm-hmm. Fancies himself kind of a musician slash maybe kind of a, like a remix artist. You know, he's sort of an electronic musician. He's got his Casio and his sound effects. My grandparents are staying with us. So this is what it sounds like when they have sex in the room next to mine. Ow! 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 What? Ow! Principal's Ow! office Ow! now. Ow! Right. He's uh, uh, always. And what you're missing is the w- wonderful smile on yeah. <laughs> on on Gene's face as he's doing that. Um, how how would you describe this character? I would describe him as uh, uh, innocently uh, savantly crass. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like he's uh, he's. Somewhere between like dopey and inventive in like uh you know unfiltered way, yeah, which is probably what's so fun about about doing it where like there's you know I think in the second because we we record all together and so we do the script and we do it a bunch of times and then we also get to improvise and that's so, that's not so you actually are all in the fi- studio yeah, yeah. at the same time we're phys- half of us are in New York and then half of us are in l a and then we're being directed from l a but like yeah, we're all on the headphones at the same time and all talking together. And so there's just a lot of things like, you know, I think in the second episode there's some like really dumb joke about Salman Rushdie that I made or something like that that gets included. So you have this 11-year-old kid who's like, one, making sex noises on a keyboard, and then at the other hand, like making like weird cryptic Salman Rushdie jokes. (laughs) And it's like, you know, sort of like a child that's like filtering just like everything he hears from like whatever's on TV to Time Magazine or something. Well, yeah, and he he loves like old 80s action shows somehow, this 11-year-old kid. Yes, there are the occasions. Occasional, yeah. Well, it's because it's me. So we'll be in a studio recording, and I'll just start talking about Hardcastle and McCormick. And then John Benjamin, instead of being like, obviously, you don't know about that. You're an 11 year old child in 2012. We'll just be like, how do you know that? How do you know about that show? And then we like talk about Hardcastle and McCormick. And then on occasion, that stuff gets in. Yeah. Or some weird, like there was some weird quick joke in the last episode about like uh, restaurants being Michelin rated. Which is clearly like not a thing a child who works at a hamburger place would ever think about. Yeah, but it was just like really weird stuff. And then of course, just like then jokes about about pooping that are ki- of killer, course killer. Well, what's what's great is that you get all your fart jokes out at work, and so yeah. I'm sure your girlfriend would is very you know grateful. Yes, that I don't come home with <laughs> trying out fart jokes. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm sure she's because pleased. men up until they die, essentially mm-hmm. up until their 80s, still just enjoy. The, yeah. A good fart joke. To me, generally. though, the, a really good, it'd be like a combination of like, it'd be like a joke about like Wittgenstein farting. That's how you, that's a killer joke. Exactly. Well, as you grow older, they get, they get no, yeah, much more. That's probably what I would have thought was funny at 20. Now I'm like, I'm, but I'm right. 
it was it'd be a little funny. Yeah, it's still funny. How would you interpret it? No, anyway, go on. Uh, there's this odd sort of subtle differentiation with me with Bob's Burgers. I'm not generally a fan of animated shows, but mm-hmm. um, there's something not that feels... Not even animated porn? Um, no, of course animated porn, because you can do so much more. <laughs> exactly, because it's freeing. Yeah, and the bodies Sci-fi can do things the real bodies just can't do. Okay. You know? Um, <laughs> Go on, sorry. And maybe it's because of John Benjamin's mm-hmm. has that very dry, very real delivery. Yeah. But it feels more, it certainly feels more like a real family than, say, The Simpsons or absolutely yeah. f- family guy. Right. Do you, d- is that on purpose? Yes, I think that's very much on purpose. I think it's also like in the show, the family clearly very much loves each other. Like yeah. they tease each other. But it's very, it's a sort of very warm, sweet show. Like I remember when I first started seeing it, I was like, oh, this is like, it really is very family-like. Yeah. You know, there is, like, the amount where, like, you taunt each other, but you also are clearly very warm towards each other, and you, like, get mad if anyone outside does it, but, like, you're fine doing it. It's very much like a family is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of your uh, pieces of advice was especially good, I thought, uh, the how to nab a husband uh-huh. advice that you gave. And I'm just wondering, um, for all of our single ladies out yeah. there, just top line how to nab a husband advice like what would you just, just little be snippets. like sort of damaged and needy and then also uh then like weirdly like just like like um you know emotionally unstable in a way where like you're really happy other times and then and then like something happens and people think that you, you that they did something wrong but really they didn't you're just like somehow like something happened in your youth or you're just whatever you're just or they did something wrong a couple months ago and you've been holding on to it no not even that that's too that's too complicated anyway i would just see say be difficult and a lot of fun <laughs> i don't know i don't know be a nice person don't be a weirdo Stop being crazy and don't say everything. Actually, that comes that's to your good head. advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that last part. Yeah, the part where you like don't come up to someone and be like, "This is everything I've been thinking for the last thirty minutes. I know we don't know each other," and then repeat it and go like, "I know this is weird. I know this is weird." I know, and then so don't do that. It's, this is this, so this is, is great. Good. This, this is, good. is really good. Wish We're gonna I have a lot of marriages yeah. of our listeners. Yeah, coming up soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just asked this question of of all the comedy people that we have on the show. Um, do you remember the time that you first realized that you were funny? Well, I don't know. Yes and no. What are the two? No. I mean, like, what's so funny is that, like, yeah, could I tell a story from when I was, like, four or 16 or something where I did something funny? Sure. I don't think I, like, you know, did a funny thing and then was like, oh, my God. Everybody, I think I might be funny. Um, I think it's just like you grow up being uh outcast jokey person and mm-hmm. then eventually you're like oh I think I could that you could just do that. I think I remember when I realized cuz I watched so much stand up as a kid and I loved it so much. Yeah. I think it's and my you know parents were programmers and I think everybody or like mechanical engineers and all the people that we kind of knew were in the sciences or math. Um and I think at some point I was just like wait a second I think comedy's like a job that some people do. <laughs> Like, I keep seeing it, and they're clearly there, and I was like, I don't know how you do it, but I bet it's possible. I should go to college for this, because that's definitely what everybody does at first. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think that I don't remember um, as much like when I was like, I don't know if you decide you're funny, I think you just decide you're going to do it as a job and then work on it. And then hope. And then and then will. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, however you want to look at it. Yeah. yeah. You just sit by your phone, and you're like, I bet Hollywood will call. And you're like, weird, I'm 23 and in Boston, and no one's called. I should probably try to get on television myself now. Exactly. I should take action. Exactly. Which is your commencement address. Exactly. Take action. Think of five things you can do. Do all of them. 
Anyway, you get <laughs> well, it. This has been wonderful and incredibly informative. Good. Well, thank um, you. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very Eugene welcome. Merman. Bye-bye, everyone. This has been a Livewire studio session with Eugene Merman. And this has been a Livewire Radio Studio Edition. Next week, we're back in the Alberta Rose Theater with Faces for Radio Theater, Scott Poole, Ralph Huntley, and the rest of the crew. Which is great, because frankly, I've been a little lonely this week, you guys. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister, and thanks for listening. Livewire is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville Restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you find people. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.